Tonight is a little bit different. We've been in a series for the last four weeks called The Death of Christian Art, talking through what it means to cultivate the spiritual discipline of art appreciation as a disciple of Jesus. And uh, we decided kind of early on in the series that um, maybe a Q&A would be an adequate format to entertain a lot of the supplemental questions that have come up along the way in your communities and in dialogue with the leadership of the church. So ordinarily, just to be clear, especially if you're new, um, this is our time and place to study the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to put those teachings into practice together. Um, that's not changing. We're still going to do that every Sunday. This is the first time we've ever done something like this. Uh, but we realized as those questions came in that they needed more. We thought maybe we'd tack on an extra 10 minutes and we needed more time than 10 minutes would allow. So tonight is just a Q&A. I don't have like sermon notes right here. This is a timer that's making me nervous already. Um, so I can keep up with how long this has been going on. And I'm supposed to remind you that if you want, along the course of this Q&A time, to submit questions, you still can. We actually have a couple of leaders upstairs that are fielding them and trying to deduce which ones would be most helpful in context of the overall night. So if something else comes to you or something comes to you in light of something that's been said, you can still submit questions and they're working to try to put them in there. That said, we won't be able to get to every single thing tonight. So let me just kind of set up um, this format over and against the format that gave way to the last four weeks of teaching. Ordinarily, um, it's my job to uh, do most of the teaching at Van City Church, and I spend anywhere from about 24 to 32 work hours every single week to write those teachings. Um, that's not hyperbole. That's what I spend most of my time on. And then every single week when I finish those teachings uh, for more or almost eight years now and hundreds of teachings at this point, they always go out to our team of staff, deacons and overseers, and they read through every single teaching, and they offer feedback, commentary, occasionally pushback or critique, and then I take all those comments into um, consideration um, and, you know, like, uh, not just like, mm, food for thought, but nope, you know, <laughs> like I actually edit and change the teaching according to their feedback and comments every single week before it gets up here on Sunday so that we can say as a leadership team, it's not just Josh up here saying what he thinks, but that we've all kind of vetted it together as a team leadership. Our, if you've been through basics, you know this already, but spoilers, if you're planning on coming to that basics class, we'll tell you that our model for leadership is team leadership. So even though I'm the one who gives most of the teachings, I'm not like the um, quote unquote lead pastor or senior pastor, I lead alongside a team of women and men that together take responsibility for the teaching and vision of the church. Um, Q&A, though, is a little bit different, and the staff encouraged me not to prefabricate long answers, that, and, and if I was writing them, they would all be really long, um, and just said, you know, the format kind of lends itself to some amount of spontaneity, so I absolutely don't plan on saying anything that's contradicted what the overseers have approved the previous four weeks or anything that I've put into this book that I've written or anything like that, but it is just kind of off the top of my head. I've seen most of the questions, I think, at least in passing, but I haven't taken time to sort of sit through and come up with some really thoughtful response. So you don't know what you're going to get. I don't know what we're going to get. But we're going to go for it. You guys all right? You up for it? I realized that this is, you know, sporting event Sunday. Uh, earlier, Coda was standing by the door. I'm about to put her business in the street. She was greeting people as they came into the church. And I heard her say, so is this how we can tell who's going to be in heaven? <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. All right. First question. Y'all ready? You good? You all right? Thank you. 
how does what we've been discussing not end with everything is art and you can consume or engage any of it? Now, this is a good question. I'll say from the outset, though, that hopefully it's been abundantly clear because I've said it several times in each of these four teachings that the idea of a spiritual discipline of art appreciation or Christian spiritual discipline of art appreciation is not and never will be anything goes. I've said that verbatim over and over and over again in every single one of these teachings. At the same time, the idea is not nothing goes. The idea is not kind of fretful, pearl-clutching, we should never engage any art that isn't explicitly industry-approved Christian, and the idea is not, hey, everything's art, I can do whatever I want. Um, the other point of this question, everything is art, you know, in the book, I argue that it's really hard to create a working definition of what art is because there hasn't been, throughout church or art history, a general consensus. The working definition I use that I think is pretty good is that whenever God or people create things that communicate ideas, emotions, or aesthetics, that's art. And once again, I've said this again throughout the teaching series, but that doesn't say anything moral about art, whether or not it communicates worthwhile or not worthwhile moral value in the art. And it doesn't say anything qualitative. Something has to be this good to be considered art, and anything else is not art. Um, it's just when God or people make things that communicate ideas, emotions, or aesthetics, that's art. It could communicate something that's reprehensible. It could communicate something that's wonderful. It could be of great, impressive, um, creative value and uh, craftsmanship. Or it could be what, you know, has historically been called low art um, and of, you know, very base craftsmanship qualifications and abilities. But it would still be technically called art according to that definition. The spiritual discipline of Christian art appreciation is the idea that throughout the scriptures, God um, creates art, he commissions art, he commands art, all kinds of art, and he intends for people to meet him in the kind of art that he creates and commissions and commands. And then down throughout church history, that has not stopped being the case, that the people of God are called to be a kind of people who create art themselves and who come near to God in art, who understand God through art, who, and who confront the reality of the world and its brokenness in and through art. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that all art is good or all art has some kind of um, spirit, unique spiritual value for all people. The easiest analogy I can think to make is probably something like food. Food is God's idea. He made it up, and he made it, from what all we can tell, to have some kind of enriching value in our lives, and it serves a practical purpose as well. But food can also be really bad for us. It just kind of depends on the person and the place and their sensibilities and their overall health and all that stuff. So um, it could be the case that some food is wonderful, healthy, you know, straight from God or the earth or however you want to describe it. Um, and in the general sense, it's, it's always good. And then some food, it just kind of depends, you know, on you and your overall health and your season of life and your relationship to food itself. You could have a really unhealthy relationship to food, and some food could be not wise for you to consume or even be around, depending on your level of health and relationship with food. But that doesn't make all food bad, and it doesn't mean that we should be suspicious of all food. It's just a general sense of discernment, Holy Spirit conviction, and the accountability of your community, of God's people. I would argue the same is true of art. Conceptually, food is good. 
God made it up. He made it to be good. But it is um, beholden to the brokenness of our world post-Genesis and the fall and all that. That doesn't mean anything goes with food, and it also doesn't mean that we should be inherently suspicious of food. The same is true of art. Next question. There it goes. Where's the line? Is there a line? What is our responsibility of discernment and how we determine if art can be considered redeemable, even if it offends? Now, this is a question that a lot of people have been asking me just in general since the book came out. It's a really good question, um, and it has, in one sense, a satisfying answer, and then another sense, a really unsatisfying answer, at least as far as I can tell and based on people's reaction to it. Um, is there a line? Yes. Okay, and, that, and by that, I'm assuming that they ask, these are mostly anonymous. Every now and then someone left their name, but I didn't put it on there because I didn't know how forthcoming they wanted to be. Um, is there a line? By that, I'm assuming the asker means, is there some things that are just inappropriate for quote-unquote Christian consumption? Yes. Where is the line? That depends on the Christian. And by that, I mean that, and you know this already from experience, there are certain works of art or kinds of entertainment that you have a unique threshold for or that don't really bother you or provoke you to sin in any way, and yet someone next to you could have very real, very valid sensibilities that are completely different. And for them, it's just not wise, not healthy, not um, a general use of good discernment to engage in certain kinds of art. And it varies from person to person all the way up into what some might describe as, you know, our most or, or our more obvious works of offensive or divisive art. The same can be true of the art in the scriptures. I think that in different seasons of your own life, you might have a unique kind of appreciation for the Psalms that go on and on about despair and darkness and an overwhelming sense of God's distance or even absence or um, anger, frustration, even a kind of vengeful feeling. And not because it um, stewards those same sensibilities in you, but because you know your own story and the fact that someone else has been there before you produces a kind of solidarity and you enjoy that part of the art and engagement and God speaks to you through it. And then there's other seasons of your life where it's probably not healthy to keep ruminating on certain psalms that go on about darkness and despair and God's distance without that resolution of everything's great at the end. Some psalms make a turn around and then there's good stuff at the end and some of them don't. They just end on a note of God, where are you? Everything seems like it's awful and then on to the next poem. The same is true of basic um, works of art and entertainment that for you, there might be certain works of art or entertainment that quite frankly provoke you to sin whether that's something like lust or anger or frustration or a sense of um, skepticism, cynicism. Um, and, but for the person next to you, they have no idea how this book or this movie could ever make someone feel like they question God's existence because that's not where their head is and that, that's not their proclivity, at least not in this season of life. So yes, there is a line. The line varies from person to person. Um, I would argue personally that we tend to go to the question of like, where's the line based on what's offensive and based on how extreme a work of art depicts a given thing that's sinful or objectionable, whatever. But more often than not, it's way more subtle than that. The line for some people could be over art and entertainment that's not really that offensive or divisive at all, but they have an unhealthy relationship with it. Um, if you spend all of your spare time 
engaging in, you know, like reality television, or the only way that you know how to spend quality time with your loved one is just watching a miniseries every single night, or something like that, that could be indicative of the fact that there's a spiritual deficit and a lack of maturity in your life, even if the content you're engaging is not really offensive or divisive at all, but it's your unhealthy relationship with it. So for you, the line might be abstinence from you know, reality television, even if it's over something that's not really all that offensive. And, and for another person, they're like, I don't ever care about seeing a reality TV show. There, that line doesn't really exist for me. If I see it, I'll probably just not want to see it anymore, not engage with it every single night. So there is a line. It tends to vary from person to person. All right, what's next? What points of discernment would you offer for the creation or appreciation of art in the context of a relationship with a weaker brother or sister, and, and they cite 1 Corinthians 8. Now, if you don't know off the top of your head, 1 Corinthians 8, this is a new question. I mean, dang, y'all already putting new stuff in there? He's, <laughs> he's giving me a thumbs up. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 8, if you don't remember, is uh, Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and they have this really unique to them issue of meat sacrificed to pagan idols. So there's this whole thing where people like kill an animal, sacrifice it to a pagan god, and then some of that meat would be left over. So practically speaking, they would just sell it in the marketplace, but it would be labeled, I guess, as meat sacrificed to idols. Now these new Christians in the city of Corinth are coming to faith for the first time. They're going to buy food in the market, and they're like, hey, this meat was sacrificed to you know, this or that pagan god. Should we not eat it? Does it? Has it taken on some kind of nefarious overall state of being because it was sacrificed? Which is a totally good question. If you saw an animal sacrificed to a pagan god, I have <laughs> in life, um, it's a really jarring, dark experience. And I could totally assume that then you see it in the market and you'd be like, gross, I don't want to eat that. Um, so they ask, like, should we just not eat it at all? And then Paul essentially says, look, the meat itself or the food itself hasn't taken on this overall state of evil where if you touch it, you'll somehow be tainted, or if you eat it, you'll somehow be tainted by it. But not everyone in your community gets that just yet, and that's fine. Some people are brand new in their faith, and you don't want to do anything that would trip them up and make them asking questions or, or realigning their priorities in such a way that they're not equipped to do yet as brand new or immature or quote unquote weaker disciples of Jesus. So he has this famous line that's used all the time, you know, if it offends my brother to eat meat, I'll never eat meat again. So, and then that's taken out, um, I don't wanna say out of context, but kind of applied in this really broad sense to mean if, you, if anything you do, or engage in, even if technically it's not inherently sinful, but if it throws off your brothers and sisters, you should just knock it off. Now, the problem with interpreting that passage and that whole line of rhetoric about meat sacrificed to idols across the board, and especially to meat sacrifice or to art and entertainment, is that now you've got a problem with the whole Bible. If the idea is that, like, oh, well, any art that could offend someone is best just left alone because, you know, Paul said, if it offends my brother to eat meat, I'll never eat meat again. Um, or, you know, any art that you create could offend someone, then you need to have that kind of mindset in, uh, in mind when you make your own art. It doesn't seem like Paul follows his own rule if it, if it applies in that kind of way. And it doesn't seem like the authors of Scripture in general follow that rule at all throughout the story of the Bible. It doesn't seem like God... <laughs> 
follows that rule at all. Because throughout the Bible, really, from the Old Testament into the New, all the way up to Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, God engages in the kind of art that is inherently divisive um, and often without any kind of practical purpose fully in mind. And by that, I mean he commissions art that he knows will alienate an audience or divide an audience, and he knows it's not going to quote-unquote work, meaning prophetic performance art from Ezekiel is not going to make Israel repent, but he wants it done anyway. Jesus knows that his um, word pictures, his parables, his constant use of parables will divide his audience, um, he tells his disciples explicitly, no, I know that they're not going to understand it, and that's part of the reason that I use this kind of teaching rhetoric. If Jesus had taken into consideration Paul's later rhetoric about, you know, if it offends somebody, then just, just leave it off the table, uh, he doesn't follow Paul's rule. It would put Paul at odds with Jesus. So personally, my take on that whole thing is, one, you have this hyper-unique issue going on in Corinth about meat sacrifice. Now, if you are eating meat sacrificed to idols, stop it. That could be offending someone in our community, and you don't want to be throwing anybody off. Um, and the easiest argument to make really is that Paul specifically says, if it offends my brother or sister to eat meat, I'll never eat meat again. It offends me if you eat meat as a vegan. Stop it. <laughs> there you go. If you want to follow that logic all the way to its natural conclusion, I mean, quite frankly, that would be the first thing to go. Stop eating meat. Um, it seems to be the case that what Paul's talking about is the unique needs of certain communities and a, a community of brothers and sisters coming around each other to accommodate the fragility of new Christians and to walk them into a better understanding in such a way that doesn't throw them off irresponsibly not some kind of broad statement on art and entertainment that then puts Paul at odds with the rest of the Bible and himself later on, if that makes sense. All right, next question. Modern Christian worship music can feel rote. Deri Levi, are you reading this? It can feel rote, derivative, and formulaic. Could we incorporate more hymns and liturgy to connect with the art in church history? Uh, honestly, this is a question for Levi. He is uh, our guy over worship and with a team of other musicians. He thoughtfully and carefully selects the kind of music that we sing and play in church. And I know as well as the rest of you guys know that, of course, this is true. Modern Christian worship can feel rote. Um, unfortunately, the kind of industry standard is that we take all of our um, aesthetic sensibilities from about two or three uh, megachurch worship conglomerates, and we follow the rule book that they've handed down across evangelicalism. Um, but uh, I think that Levi is a very uh, gifted artist, and he's working to, over time, push us in new, interesting directions. And yes, we as a church have often, or have been over the last few years, trying to incorporate more thing, things like um, liturgical practices, the reading of scriptures, and reading of liturgies as a response and prayer and worship. Um, but we also know and have a certain amount of sensitive, sensitivity to the fact that if, you know, you've been going to Van City for six or seven years and you sit down one night and all of a sudden there were liturgical chants and meditations for the first time, you'd be like, whoa, what the heck? I feel like I've been left in the dust. So we are, I hope, moving into a direction slowly over time, more in keeping with the broad appreciation for the arts and church history, not just a standard set out by two or three megachurch worship conglomerates. Um, but yeah, ask Levi. Take it up with him. He picks the songs. Will God continue to utilize dark, disturbing art in the new heaven 
and earth. This is a, I saw this question, I was like, who the heck asked this? What a weird, interesting question. I had never thought about it before at all. Uh, the obvious responsible answer is I have no idea. There's no clear answer in the Bible as to whether or not God will utilize dark, disturbing art in the new heaven and new earth. There is um, a case from Revelation that there will continue to be art in the new heaven and new earth. You have this kind of picture of city and, or, you know, like there's culture and food and music and all that kind of stuff. So it seems like art, you know, God made it up. It's kind of how all this came into being, art. Um, so it seems like his uh, identity as the creator isn't going anywhere and art will continue to be a thing. I don't know that it makes much practical sense for there to be dark, disturbing art in the new heaven and new earth because dark, disturbing art is a way that people can and do kind of engage with, confront, comment on, depict the broken state of the world. Um, now, that said, uh, that does not mean that therefore, oh, it won't be in the new heavens and the new earth, therefore, why should we even mess with it right now? And, and the reason is there's lots and lots and lots of things that are necessary accommodations for the broken state of the world that we won't need on the other side of resurrection. Therapy being one of them. You won't need to go to a counselor um, when Jesus makes everything new. You do need to go to a counselor now, probably 100% of you, <laughs> uh, and myself absolutely included. Um, in the new heaven and the new earth, there won't be things like communal conflict resolution, and there won't be um, things like uh, brothers and sisters come around one another to weep over tragedy and walk one another through healing. We do need all those things right now because the world is broken and we are responding to, reflecting on, and dealing with the brokenness of the world. And I would argue personally that art is one of the best ways to engage with, reflect on, and um, deal with um, the broken state of the world. And once again, the Bible does this. The Bible does this beautifully in the Psalms. Um, Jesus does this in his teachings and word pictures that are evocative and wild and offensive. Um, so that is something that I think we need badly in a broken world. I don't need, know if we'll need it all that much to the glory of God in the new heaven and the new earth. Next, are we gonna, are we gonna get Josh a set of super cool Orthodox style gold trimmed robes? Um, probably, not, probably not gold trimmed. Do they have ones with black thread in them or something like that? All right, I don't, that's a decision for the overseers. <laughs> Next question. Christians judge sexual content and art far more harshly than violence, profanity, or despair. Is this a biblically correct judgment? How careful must we be? It's a really good question. The first thing I would say right out of the gate is uh, probably, yeah, it is a fair judgment. And the reason I would say that is because you do have at least teaching from Paul in the New Testament where he says that all other sin that people commit, they kind of commit outside of their body. But the person who sins sexually, in Paul's language, sins against their own bodies um, and, and, and they grieve the Spirit of God that's in them. So that doesn't mean that, oh, well, that makes it the worst kind of sin in the whole world, it, but it does mean that it's a uniquely devastating kind of sin. And we know from experience, culture, history, that there are depictions of sexuality in art and entertainment that can provoke uh, a person to sin. So that unique kind of like, well, we take this one thing really seriously, um, not in the puritanical sense of, you know, people getting offended by the Sistine Chapel, which happened then and still happens now, 
um, or anything that would even broach the line of discussion about sexuality. That's completely off the table because, once again, if you go that far, now you have a problem with the Bible, which has an entire collection of erotic poetry and erotic um, Hebrew poetry that most scholars agree is in there to be read and enjoyed. That's a direct quote from Tim Mackey at the Bible Project, not Josh's weird interpretation. Um, so if that's the case, like, oh, this has sexuality in it, and if you've read this thing, you know some of it's pretty graphic, then now that's off the table because it's inherently dangerous. We need to keep it up, all that kind of stuff. But in the sense that we should have a unique kind of concern for our own sensitivities to, proclivities, uh, our flesh, our own weaknesses, yeah, we should take that absolutely really seriously. And the reality is, I also would say, is that most um, marginally healthy people uh, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually healthy people, even if they see a graphic depiction of something like violence, for example, um, probably won't go out and then enact violence. There's absolutely no uh, evidence of that kind of correlation, much to the chagrin of kind of like modern evangelical machine that would suggest otherwise of the way that we react to violence in the world. Oh, it must have been a movie or whatever. Um, most people, even if they see some kind of heinous depiction of violence or like a war movie or something like that, won't then go, I want to do violence. In fact, there's not even any evidence to support the idea that fictionalized depictions of violence desensitize a, certain, a person to violence. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary. But um, there is lots and lots of evidence that graphic depictions of sexuality in art and entertainment can provoke a person to... Uh, what we would describe in Christian language, lust, or to objectify other people, or to sin as a result of having seen it, dwelling on images. And it's not just images. That's a, another kind of broad-stroke stereotype that's not really helpful. I have a pastor friend I was just talking to recently, counseling someone in the throes of sexual addiction, and their drug of choice is like erotic literature, and would never dream of like going on the internet or something like that. So everyone's bent and brokenness is very different, and there's a unique kind of sensitivity there. I've heard, I don't know how many millions of swear words in movies and songs over the course of my 40 years. I still don't ever say swear words. No amount of hearing them makes me say them on accident. So there's, I think, a unique kind of danger in um, sexuality and in art, and that's where discernment, conviction, and accountability of the community comes to bear on our uh, spiritual discipline of art appreciation. Does the breadth of Josh's definition of Christian art, this is also a new one, call into question his definition of a Christmas movie? I like that you guys are putting ones in here in le for levity. No, the answer's no. It doesn't. Next question. <laughs> an implication, likely accurate, was that Christians use Philippians 4.8 as an out-of-context shame tool. How then do we correctly discern art through these verses? Philippians 4.8, if you don't remember, is Paul's list of like these virtuous things that qualify for meditation for the disciple of Jesus. Like whatever is true and noble and good, if anything's pure or excellent or praiseworthy, those are the things you should be thinking about all the time. Um, and I told a story about how often in my life um, other disciples of Jesus have used Philippians 4.8 to kind of say, therefore, that work of art or that movie or that book is off the table because it's not pure and excellent and praiseworthy and all those things. So this person's asking, like, okay, so if that gets used out of context, how do you bring it to bear on art? Um, to that question, I would tell a short story. I remember once years ago, I was doing, you know, in some kind of conversation with someone on the internet, 
and asked about my favorite record. I answered the question. And then someone came along, and I think good-naturedly, it's hard to read on the internet, but I think good-naturedly said, hey, with all due respect, how, do, how can you, they said, glorify God while listening to that? Meaning that they, they couldn't conceive of a world where that could be appropriate according to the Philippian, Philippians 4.8 standard of whatever is good, true, and noble. And my immediate non-smart alecky answer was, I don't know how I could not glorify God while listening to this, because even though this is something made by someone who's not a Christian and comes from a, a worldview that's not Christian, um, it's a story I resonate with. It's a story about pain and suffering, um, the kind of pain and suffering that I've known in my own life. Um, it asks the same kinds of existential questions that I ask in my own life. The musicianship, the craftsmanship is excellent and praiseworthy. The aesthetics are noble and good. Um, so to me, it meets all of those qualifications in spades. In fact, more so than many works of art that I've appreciated in my life. But another person next to me would probably use that exact same verse to condemn that work of art. So I think that the answer is accepting a broader paradigm for how to apply those adjectives. If Paul's language about whatever's pure and noble and good and excellent, praiseworthy, all these different things he say only apply to squeaky clean, uplifting, positive-minded um, art and entertainment, well, sure, then you've got a problem with lots of stuff. Once again, you've got a big problem with a lot of the art in the Bible. But if by that you could mean that this craftsmanship is excellent and praiseworthy. The aesthetics are, are, are good. Um, the ideas expressed and the, the fact that someone can resonate with them and, and, um, and that God could bring them in a deeper spiritual truth as a result, that's pure, that's good, that's admirable. Um, then that makes a lot of sense. Now, that doesn't mean that, oh, okay, anything I want to call pure, I can just call pure. But it does, I think, challenge us to give Paul more license with his adjectives in, in, in even applying to the art and the scriptures. How is a, song, a psalm, a poem that says, you know, happy is the one who dashes your infants against the rocks. Is that pure and noble and good and praiseworthy? Absolutely not. That idea isn't. But are the scriptures pure and good and excellent and praiseworthy? Yes. So that becomes, I think, an example of that complicated paradox in interpreting how we apply those things. You don't want to create a situation where Paul is now at odds with the rest of the Bible, if that makes sense. If there's a level of subjectivity in interpreting art, and, it, and we could view the Bible as art, how much subjectivity can we allow for in biblical interpretation? It's a really good question. About that, I would say this. Yes, the Bible is a work of art, but it's important to understand the kind of work of art that the Bible is and how many genres of art the Bible collects and utilizes to do what the Bible does. So uh, here's an example that I think maybe makes some sense. We'll see. Imagine that, uh, I don't, I'm not going to cite a specific work of art because you might know more about it than I do, and you're going to be like, oh, he's describing it all wrong. But imagine hundreds of years ago, uh, one of our renowned artists of art history painted a portrait of someone, uh, a real person of history. And imagine that we know from the historical record, um, from all accounts, that this portrait of this famous individual, historical individual, is, a, is accurate, as accurate as a painting could be. And the painter's really talented, so they painted it with some kind of photorealism. It's all there. That's what the person looked like. It's an accurate portrait. The genre is a portrait, so it's not abstract. It's not, you know, open to all kinds of wild interpretations. 
This is the person. We know what it was. We know what purpose it serves. And there's the work of art. That won't stop art historians and art enthusiasts into reading into every single detail of that painting. Why did they use this color and what does it represent? And did you notice that there's a green horizon in the background? And some say that that represents this. And they'll kind of read between the lines and appreciate and soak up every single detail of that artistic intentionality. And in, and in that sense, it's open to some level of interpretation. You couldn't say, it's actually a painting of someone else. It's not. We know it's not. You couldn't say, it's actually a painting of an elephant. It's not a painting of an elephant. We know what an elephant looks like. We know what this person looked like. So in that sense, it's not open to interpretation. The overall story of the scriptures, and there's been agreement, uh, consensus agreement on this from the um, time of the, uh, of the writings of the scriptures all the way up into the modern day church across the history of the Jesus movement tells a unified story about how, um, uh, about God and humanity, how things went off the rails and how God is working to bring everything back into uh, restoration through his son, Jesus. And on that, there's complete agreement. I couldn't say it's actually a story about an elephant because we know that it's not. Um, and on the minute level, I can't go into a certain genre of literature and say that it's something else. And this is how we've gotten into all kinds of trouble with the scriptures. Take Song of Songs, for example. You, I know everyone wants to keep me talking about Song of Songs. The general consensus um, from Bible scholars and Hebrew commentators is that Song of Songs is a book of Hebrew love poetry, erotic poems, and it's designed to celebrate God's gift of um, sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife and to be read for enjoyment uh, as that work of art. Um, and then throughout church history, uh, and especially modern, mostly modern church history in the West, uh, we're so terrified of the idea that God would just include a collection of sex poems in the Bible that there's been all kinds of work done to desperately make it be about anything else. And it's the weirdest and quite frankly grossest effort of Bible commentators to be like, oh, it actually symbolizes this or that thing, and it doesn't respect the form or the genre that it was designed to be. If I go into poems and apply them as literal uh, discourse teachings, like the teachings of Jesus, then what do you do when you get to happy as the one who dashes your infants against the rocks? Instead, we read those in context, the kind of genre of art it is, the form it is. It's not open to my unique interpretation. It's not anything goes. Um, so the answer to this question is honestly biblical literacy. You learn how to read the Bible appropriately within the community of God's people and according to submitted to the tradition of Jesus across hundreds and hundreds of years and to appreciate the kind of work at art it is. Just because it's a work of art doesn't mean that it's completely subjective in every way, just like a certain given works of art are not completely subjective in any given way. Uh, what about great art that was created by bad people? Picasso, Woody Allen, Hemingway, Kanye West, all of them going under the bus tonight together. Uh, which is a funny word picture or image in my mind. How can we appreciate the art without endorsing the behavior? I love this question. I think it's, it's one of my favorite things to talk about in this whole conversation. There's a whole chapter in the book on it called, I think, uh, The Image of God is a Vandalized Painting. And it's my favorite part in the book. Here's what I would say about this. If you engage in any effort to kind of scrub the record clean of any art created by bad people, you end up with no art, no art at all. Uh, every single person is a bad person. <laughs> every single human being across the long timeline of human history is guilty of egregious sin, of heinous evil, 
um, within and without. And some of them, of course, uh, make spectacular headlines and, and seem worse than another given person. But some of that is also subjective and subject to your sensibilities and what uniquely offends you. I don't think that it's a wise, worthwhile effort to say uh, or to engage what has become described as cancel culture. This person did this bad thing, therefore we can never engage with anything they've ever made ever again. And if you do, you're also a bad person. And by the way, no one I've ever known has ever maintained uh, that kind of discipline with any amount of integrity whatsoever. And, and it becomes this fool's errand where you're like, oh, well, what about this one? They did this thing. What about this one? The other thing I would say is this. Um, again, puts you in a bad place with the Bible itself. Uh, you guys heard tell of this guy called David. Um, he's a king, made a lots of cool headlines in the Bible, did some great things, did some awful things. In fact, most noteworthy among the awful things that David does is that he observes a woman bathing, objectifies her, ogles her, sins for her, even though he knows that she's already married. Now most Bible scholars, or at least a lot of Bible scholars, um, would argue that David rapes Bathsheba. Um, and then he uses his power and his privilege to manipulate circumstances so that he can have her husband killed, brings her into his house as his wife, as a polygamist, with other women and concubines, um, and we know that she's torn up about the whole thing, that it's like this awful um, situation that she's been put in. And, you know, he's Israel's king, and he, writes all, he goes on to write all kinds of incredible poems um, that now make up the collection of uh, prayer poems called the Psalms, including poems reflecting on the fact that he did those things. But that still doesn't change the fact that David um, was a murderer, a rapist, um, a man guilty of heinous evil. In fact, the kind of evil that makes some of these people look very tame by comparison. Um, now, Jesus, in one of the most sacred moments in human history, on the cross as he's giving his life as a ransom for many, um, decides to quote a poem, which I think is a beautiful, incredible, uh, revelatory thing in and of itself, he quotes a psalm, and it's one of David's psalms. He says, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you read the rest of this psalm, it goes on to have this kind of redemptive closure in the end, but Jesus doesn't read any of that stuff. He just quotes this one verse that confuses people to this day. Oh my, what does that mean? And why would he say such a thing? He's quoting scripture, dark, upsetting scripture on the cross in this dark, upsetting moment depicted in the scriptures. And he quotes a rapist and a murderer to say those things in one of the most sacred moments in human history. So I don't think that, now of course, that's the Bible David wrote in the scriptures inspired by the spirit of God himself. But that doesn't change the fact that you can't really get around art made by bad people. I will say as a caveat that of course your unique and valid sensibilities might put you at odds with a certain artist if you learn some horrible thing about them, especially if you really love that artist and you find out something really horrible about them, it can kind of taint your experience of their art. That's totally valid, totally worthwhile. Um, you know, if you're a, a student of stand-up comedy, for example, and you really want to master the art of stand-up comedy and you study the greats in um, comic history, and you come across the body of work of uh, Bill Cosby, who most stand-up co comedians agree is, is one of the greatest bodies of work of any stand-up comedian. Um, you might find it really difficult or even impossible to engage with knowing the, the crimes of Bill Cosby at this point. 
Um, or you might be able to study it as an artifact of comedy history and to glean from it or to appreciate the value in that uh, craftsmanship, or you might not. They're both totally fine positions. The thing that I think is dangerous is the mentality that says, this person did a bad thing, therefore no one is allowed to engage with it on any level, and if you do, you're somehow complicit in the bad thing that they did. Um, I think we got time for maybe one or two more guys up there if you are, are choosing them thoughtfully. What of art and dark spirituality? Pearl-clutching moms often labeled art like Harry Potter as a source of demonic influence. Is there ever a real connection? This is a great question. Uh, I like that Harry Potter got in there as well. Um, now, about this, here's what comes to mind, at least off the top of my head. Um, the idea that certain kinds of art, because it depicts certain kinds of thing, uniquely qualifies it to act as a channel for demonic influence, I think can get us into a bad, irresponsible place in our relationship with art and entertainment. Here's what I mean by that. If you think, like for example, many um, conservative Christian parents did in the, what, 90s is when those books were first published, in the 90s, um, that, oh, it depicts magic, it's a school of witchcraft and wizardry. The word witchcraft is in there, so it's already terrifying. Um, therefore, it uniquely opens one up to some kind of demonic influence and activity, or, you know, the movie, the horror movie is about demons or whatever it is, whether it's The Exorcist in 1973 or whatever is coming out now. It's about demons, therefore it's uniquely, you, you put yourself in unique danger to demonic oppression. Has, it come, has a, a handful of problems, one of which is in the world of the Harry Potter books, for example, magic is fiction. So it's, the author doesn't believe that magic is real. Um, from what we know about J.K. Rowling, she's, a, I think, a lapsed Anglican. Uh, so she claims a Christian worldview. I don't know her personally. Uh, but by the end of those things, she's just outright quoting Paul and, and Jesus and the Bible, you know, and it becomes a very kind of stock story of good versus evil. Well, that's not what we were upset about. We were upset about the fact that magic was in it at all. And then people would say, like, oh, what about Lord of the Rings? They're like, ah, shut up. And there were people would be like, what about the Chronicles of Narnia? Ah, it's different, you know, the lion's Jesus or whatever. Um, so, I mean, the fictional depiction of magic uh, doesn't necessarily put one at danger of demonic oppression any more than reading Chronicles of Narnia or reading Tolkien's writing or something like that. What, and I would go back to something I said earlier. Um, of course, I would argue, and I have a very high um, view, worldview that accommodates um, spiritual activity, the demonic realm, believe it's a very real thing and a very dangerous thing. Of course. Um, the demonic realm, demons, spiritual entities can and will engage you in art and entertainment um, if you are vulnerable uh, for that kind of attack. But at least in my personal pastoral experience, it hasn't been, I don't know anyone yet, I'm not saying it's never happened, but I don't know anyone yet that was like, just reading this kid's story about a magic school, and then all of a sudden, you know, these demonic things started happening in my life. It happens more often with you know, I completely tune out and just spend hours watching TV, any kind of TV, or I completely tune out and numb myself watching this kind of thing, reading this kind of thing to escape from reality, to shirk my spiritual responsibilities or my domestic responsibilities because I have pain or because I have avoidance. I think personally that that's uh, the demonic realm. Demons will, can and will um, take advantage of that kind of weakness 
in your life. I don't think necessarily, I'm not saying never, but I don't think necessarily just because the story depicts demons or the story depicts magic, it becomes a uniquely dangerous channel for demonic activity. And my logic for that would again be that would put you in trouble with reading the stories in the scriptures. Now, certainly reading the temptation of Jesus where he's one-on-one -on -one dialoguing with the devil himself, like if it's dangerous to read stories about demons or to hear words from demons and the devil, uh, then you should probably skip that story in the life of Jesus. But it has a unique application in the discipleship of Jesus, and so can depictions of um, spiritual things in stories or magic, I guess. I think they're yeah, fine. Don't, I, I would say the Harry Potter, I saw Harry Potter come up in a lot of these questions. I didn't know how many of them would make it, but there you go. One more before we quit. When putting art into the world, it may not be used by others for the purpose of spiritual formation. How do we make art responsibly? Great. We can end on a question for the creative people amongst us. When you make art, it may not be used by others for the purpose of spiritual formation. How do we make art responsibly? I think personally, and I take this page from the book of Jesus, who, um, like I said earlier, devised, creatively devised teachings with parables and metaphors and word pictures, some of them grotesque, upsetting, divisive, alienating. And then he kinds of unleashes them on a crowd and then in some cases cuts the crowd in half or even more. And his friends come up to him and they're like, what the heck, you, you offended? In one story, do you not realize you offended the religious leaders? In other stories, like, why do you keep talking in parables? You know people don't get it, right? And Jesus has a unique kind of teaching purpose in mind with those decisions that he makes. Yes, he's Jesus, you're not, and I'm not. But it doesn't seem to me that concern for the audience's unilateral or, or I guess unequivocal understanding, comprehension is a value in the teaching of, of Jesus. It seems to me that truth is the value in Jesus's teaching, that uncompromising reality of God is a value in the teaching of Jesus. And he's willing to use um, creative tools to get those things across, even if those creative tools divide the audience and their ability to comprehend what he's saying. So I think that when you are in your own life submitted to the teaching of Jesus, to Jesus as Lord, when you are working as much as it depends on you to practice thoughtful discernment and how you create art, um, when you are inviting the conviction of this Holy Spirit to convict you in your creation of art, and when you are submitting your art to the accountability of your community of God's people. Like when I write something, not just a teaching, but a book or something like that, I give it to a group of selected friends who hold me accountable, who share community with me and say, tell me what you think about this. And they talk me through it and correct me and all of this and this and this. Um, I think that your responsibility to uh, make art thoughtfully is, uh, that obligation is fulfilled in those practices and it still might divide audiences and there still might be lots of people who don't understand it as something for spiritual formation. I think that the effort to make something 100% palatable to all people at all times hamstrings creativity. Um, it uh, completely robs art of any of its uh, vital kind of visceral power, and you end up with something that a lot of people like, but it's really not of much value, um, or it's really not of much deep, convicting 
value. You know, my kind of equation for this is that the more you water something down with audience expectation, um, the more palatable, palatable it becomes for more people at any given time and place. The less that you water something down with audience expectation, the more likely it is to only identify with a small group of people. And that's the kind of practice I saw or I see in the teaching of Jesus. He explicitly says, this is so that the ones who already have, um, even what they have is going to be taken away. And the ones who want more, they're going to get. The idea is that like who's ready to hear, who's ready to receive, will receive tenfold because of the power of the uncompromised creative um, creativity in the work of art. And the people who are not ready, who are closed off, who are like, no, I'm not ready to open my mind or receive this or think critically, they're not going to get it anyway. So why should we accommodate this creatively is what I see in the teaching of Jesus with his willingness to say stuff and have, I think it's hilarious, his whole like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then there's someone quoted me like, this is a hard teaching. Who can, who can accept it, you know? And then Jesus' immediate question to his disciples after that hilarious quote is, does this offend you, you know? Um, so he knows that it's offensive, and he knows that it offended, but he's asking, are you willing to engage it in a meaningful way? So if you are submitted to Jesus as Lord, practicing discernment, um, Holy Spirit conviction, the accountability of God's people, it doesn't mean you'll get it perfect every time, but you'll be much more likely to then, with peace of mind, create without feeling any necessary need to censor yourself and allow God to do the work that he's going to do in, in your art. Um, and may that be the case for our, the creatives in our family and community, and may it be the case for us as we learn to practice the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. Let me pray, and then we'll continue to respond to God in worship and prayer. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.